I mean, Becca and Jason come into the scene and just seem to have no idea what they want from the other person and do or don't get it. It's very hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it makes it so real. Like, I know I've had conversations like that before. Hello, hello, discerning podcast listener. Welcome to another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And we are back. It is Monday. If you're listening to this on release date or one seven, you know, seven days after that or seven days after that or seven days after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anything <laughs> in between. It's a different day of the week and we welcome you to No Script all the same. <laughs> yeah. All, all y'all Tuesday listeners are welcome here as well. One week from today, a week from this Monday, which would be next Monday. We've already covered the seven days a week thing. We are starting Miller Month. Many Miller you remember season one, we did musical month. Well, we're back with season two's version, Miller Month. We have not yet covered one of the great American playwrights, one of the hallowed playwrights of really world literature, Arthur Miller. So it is time. It is finally time. We will be doing four Arthur Miller plays during the month of March. We have a now determined order. So if you're planning to read along with us or you know some of the plays and you want to listen for a very particular one, we are doing The Crucible first. That's where we'll be starting next week. And then we will do A View from the Bridge, All My Sons, and we will end the Miller Month with, of course, Death of a Salesman. Yes, indeed. I'm very excited. There's so many iconic images in my mind from those plays, and I'm sure they are in yours as you have been reading them from probably high school on, starting with The Crucible. So, so hopefully you're looking forward to it as much as we are. We also want to take a moment at the beginning to thank all of our patrons over on patreon.com. Thank you all for helping support the show monetarily. The show is a lot of fun. We love doing it, but it is not free. Uh, there are some fees associated, so thank you all for pitching in and being a part of keeping this podcast going. If you are interested in joining up and becoming a producer or a patron of the arts and we are the arts in that equation, you can head on over to patreon.com. We have a whole bunch of different tiers there. By a whole bunch, I mean one to three. Um, we have uh, the initial $1 tier that you can be a part of everything that's going on, be a part of the patron-only posts over there. So hopefully you take a second, check us out at patreon.com slash noscript. And I really want to emphasize that the lowest tier is $1 a month. $12 a year will help you to support NoScript. I hope that in your engagement with NoScript, you feel like you are at least getting $1 a month worth of return on your time spent with us. I, I feel like you are. Um, for those of you who can give more, we'd welcome that. But please, please, please consider going over to our Patreon, chipping in $1 a month. I suspect the time it will take you to log in and, and set it all up will be more uh, troublesome to you than the dollar a month. So I hope you can find a few minutes to just get it set up and support this podcast. Yeah, you can be listening to us while you do it even. There you so, go. This yeah. is an audio-only experience <laughs> at this point. You are doing something else, likely not just sitting on the couch. Yes. So whatever you're doing, just pause. Continue to listen to No Script. Pause your other activity. <laughs> Unless you're driving. go to our Unless Patreon. Don't, don't, don't pause don't, driving. Don't stop driving. You can pull over or 
but don't <laughs> don't don't multitask, please. Uh, yes. In the name of your own safety. Today we're talking about <laughs> rabbit hole, <laughs> which is. <laughs> that was a good that was a good transition right I, there. I, I felt like we were petering out on the Patreon thing, so it was time yep. to push forward. Nicely done. Today we're talking about Rabbit Hole, a play by David Lindsay Abair. Um Wow, it is shocking that it has taken us this many episodes to do Rabbit Hole because both Jackson and I are just so fond of this script. Yeah, we've 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 tried on multiple occasions to get this script done somewhere. And we are going and, to do it. <laughs> we, we're going to do it. It's going to happen. We've had other friends jump on the project and just distance and time and all sorts of things have come up. But this is a beautiful play. deals with some really poignant images and issues. And I'm very excited that we are finally wrapping our way around to it this week. Right. So Rabbit Hole was one of those crazy plays that had its world premiere on Broadway, if you can believe that, at the Biltmore Theater um, in 2006. In that production, Cynthia Nixon actually played Becca, who is one of uh, five characters in the play. Jackson will get to that later. So it premiered on Broadway. It won uh, many, many things, including a Pulitzer Prize for Drama, and Cynthia Nixon won a Tony Award for Best Actress in a Play. It was also not Nominated for many things beyond that, including Tony Award for Best Play, Tony Award for Best Featured Actress, Tony Award for Best Direction, etc., etc. So, a uh, very well lauded play. It's got a lot of life, even still, now more than 10 years later from its first production in 2006. There was a movie. The movie was a 2010 adaption of the script. Nicole Kidman and Eric Eckhart, or sorry, Eric, Eric Eckhart, Aaron Eckhart, there you go, yeah. uh, were the two, uh, were, were the husband and wife, Becca and Howie. Uh, Diane West played Nat. She was awesome. And then Miles Teller, back in 2010, when he was a little bit more unknown, was Jason, who is the uh, all-important high school student. I think that's as much as I can, uh, as vague as I can be on those character descriptions before you take your turn, Jackson. Yeah, we're going to, we're probably going to end up taking the vague out of this equation pretty quickly. Um, I can't even go go through the character descriptions of this synopsis without pretty much spoiling the, one of the core parts of this play. So if you really want to be surprised by our conversation, that's not going to happen. Um, but I will kind of go through a little bit, the, just the relationships of the characters, and then we'll kind of quickly talk about the spoiler for the for the play. Um, there are the, the main characters in this play. There's only five. It's a pretty small cast. There is uh, Becca and Izzy, who are sisters. And uh, Becca is married to Howie. And then Becca and Izzy's mother, Nat, is uh, the other character within that family. Um, much of the play is dealt with between those four characters. A lot, Most of the scenes take place between them. And uh, then there's another character, who is Jason, who is a high school student. This brings us to the plot points. <laughs> well, we... Yeah, let's go through the plot before you say anything more about Jason. Yeah, so the, the plot centers around this family as they um, are going through a pretty tough time together. Um, all of them are in this transitionary period between uh, a moment of crisis in their family and, and dealing with that crisis and how to live with it. Um, we, we hit the play right away with uh, a scene between Becca and Izzy and they have their own ways of grappling with it and we just progress through the play more and, and with more and more seeing them unwrap these these kind of deep-seated issues and things they're holding back from each other. And so the play does a, a wonderful job at slowly giving you the information 
I suspect the first time you interact with it, it's been so many years now ago for me that I've forgotten how I first discovered what happens in the plot of Rabbit Hole. Uh, but I suspect that in your first interaction with it, it takes you many of the scenes to piece together the truth of what has just recently happened to this family and really especially to Becca and Howie, uh, a husband and wife. They had, in the past tense, a young son named Danny. And Danny was killed in a car accident. That is where Jason comes in. Jason, the high school student, uh, was the the person who killed, unfortunately, killed Danny. And he comes into the plot a little bit later. But that is what this play is a, is about. It's about the aftermath of this this horrible accident and what this family, not just Becca and Howie, but the whole family is going to do looking forward from that. Yeah, this I, I completely agree that this play is a masterwork of withholding the the core thing that is affecting everyone. And then once you figure it out, you figure out that uh, Becca and Howie have lost their son, Danny. Um, so many other of the things that have happened start to make sense. And you think back, and you're like, oh, that's what they were talking about um, that whole time. The first scene starts with this kind of crazy uh, conversation with Izzy. Izzy is this great character in the play who uh, the sister of Becca and she's just a wild card in most scenarios. Um, she starts the scene talking about this woman who she hauled off and punched in a bar and slowly kind of brings to light that maybe she was a little bit more at fault for, for the reasons why why they got in a fight than perhaps initially she was talking about. But you, you see throughout the play then each of these different combinations of people, Becca and Izzy, Howie and Becca who are married, Nat and Becca, who Nat is her mother, how they all talk around and eventually talk toward this issue that they are all still dealing with Danny's death, which was just months ago. The first scene is a really great example of that because Izzy and Becca are discussing, like Jackson said, this sort of fight that Izzy got into at the bar. This And eventually it's revealed that the reason why this woman at the bar came up to scream at Izzy and attack her is that Izzy has been, or had been in the past at least, sleeping with her boyfriend, Augie, and that Izzy is now pregnant. Yeah. And there's some some interaction between them about, oh, I'm sorry, this is such bad timing for you. Um, are you okay with this? I, I know how this must be for you, which, you know, you start to build the clues of what, what could that mean? But then the, really that scene, the, the crucial piece of evidence that you carry forward into determining what might have happened to this family is that Becca has been folding all this children, this child's clothes. She's been folding just a laundry basket full of children's clothing. And she says, well, I'm not going to give this away anymore. I was going to give it to Goodwill, but now I'll just give it to you. And Izzy says, I don't want those clothes. It would be weird for my kid to wear Danny's clothes. And you might just think, oh, well, it's because they're hand-me-downs. But Becca wipes that away pretty quickly by saying it would be different if they were hand-me-downs. <laughs> right. <laughs> so that's gone. So if you're a person that has come into this story fresh, you're now knowing something has occurred, which has made the fact that Izzy is pregnant awkward and she doesn't want these mysteriously leftover child's clothes. Yeah. So you, you start putting together the clues and then the next scene happens and it's between Becca and Howie and they are 
talking uh, uh, talking about each other's days and who they were meeting with, and and more and more clues begin to come around, and eventually it is said in that scene. It's it's it's. I imagine that the first scene takes you know twenty minutes or so, and so you're sitting in that for a while, but then it hits you pretty quick within the first hour of this play what has happened and what they're grappling with. Yeah, it goes scene to scene. So. What do you think, Jackson? Should we talk about perhaps the way these different characters experience the grief of of the loss of Danny as a way to kind of envelop us in the story and what occurs? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about. I think that's a good way to do it because it is all about the characters in this um, and 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 getting to know them and what they're dealing with. Let's start with uh, Becca. All right, so Becca. <laughs> <laughs> is, um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm always hesitant to make judgments like this before we really think it out. But Becca is probably the protagonist. She is probably the main character. Um, if there is one, this is a really character-driven play and lots of the characters have lots of quote-unquote screen time. But Becca is is certainly the one around whom most of the scenes revolve and and, and her grief and, and the things that she's had to do to overcome the loss of her son. So what are some of those things that have gone on in her life? What, how is she coping, Jackson? Well, she's coping intermittently. Um, so, something of note within this play, as we are as we are diving into the characters, is is there's a note from the playwright that this play needs to be of 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 high functioning individuals dealing with grief. It is not that they are they are kind of uh, sadly moping through this they are trying to function at the best of their ability, but there's this awful sadness underneath it. So. Uh, Becca is is carrying on as best she can. She is uh, she is kind of relying on herself for a lot of the impetus to do so. Uh, as we'll talk about with Howie in a minute, Howie seeks exterior um, help from with grappling with these issues. But she's trying to work through it, it, of it as much as she can. She's also dealing with um, a lot of perceived abandonment from people. Um, she has friend groups that don't call her anymore and she believes the onus is on them to call them. And since they're not, she has cut, cut off other people from her. So she's kind of grappling very solo with some of these issues. Right. That's a lot of her journey is sort of trying to get through it by herself. Partially, like you said, because she feels like people have left her alone. And she also feels like her and Howie are in very different places in their recovery. So she identifies that she and Howie are not in the same place in this recovery. So that makes her alone from Howie. And she several times says to Izzy and Nat, her sister and mother, that they don't, they don't understand. Their experiences aren't the same. You couldn't get what I'm going through. So in that way, she isolates her grief from their experiences. And then, as you alluded to, she's not seeking any external help. She does not want to go to a support group for people who've lost children. And she is adamantly against seeing a therapist. Now, remember that this is an early 2000s, 2006 play. I, I do think in the 12 years, 13 years since then, the attitudes around therapy have changed. So her refusal to see a therapist feels a little anachronistic to me. Mm. Um, I, I'm not sure if the play were written now that that part of it, that she adamantly does not want to see a therapist would be in there. I think that there's some societal change around that potentially. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. I think I think the the broader sweep of the societal um, acceptance of that has changed, uh, arguably for the better. Um, but but I think that uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely for the better. Um, 
but I think I think there are. St- I, I don't know that that necessarily completely negates her from uh, from empathy in that. I think there are still people who uh, who would who who fight for that ability to to be independent of it and handle an issue on their own. And Absolutely. I think that, and yeah. David Lindsay Bear even still today can write a character with that particular outlook. But as a as Becca as much as Becca is a representation of people struggling with grief, I, I would hope that in the years since this play, people struggling with grief as a whole have started to see a different outlook towards therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. At I least think that's I a hope, that. maybe more than a yeah. than a, a firm decision. So, how does this affect Becca's different relationships, especially her relationship with Howie? What has been going on in the time that this play has occurred between her and Howie since since Danny's death? Yeah, well, they've so especially between her and Howie, they have uh, they begun the process. Kind of the we we pick up the play in the middle of the process of them changing things. Um, you get the sense that this is maybe not uh, maybe not a sudden shift, but it is a culminative shift. They're getting rid of some items. She offers to give away Danny's clothes to Izzy. Um, the question comes up of of what things to keep they, that they that they've given away their dog um, to their their her mother to Nat to take care of. And uh, so so they're they're grappling with this this sense of loss and now the impetus to move forward and how they want to move forward is is opposed um so, so, some of of howie's desire to move forward is in the emotional sphere that is makes it uncomfortable for becca to move forward some of becca how becca wants to move forward is in the material sphere which howie is reluctant to move forward with so let, um, let's bear that out a little bit. Let's talk about Howie briefly and then return to kind of this opposition. So Howie is has sought help from a, a, a support group of people who've lost children and, and seems very involved in it, knows people by name, knows their stories, seems to go very, very regularly to the point where later in the play not going becomes a plot point. Um, so Howie's dealing with it like that. Howie likes to likes to be reminded of Danny. Does that seem fair? Whereas Becca doesn't want the reminders how he does. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. Yeah. I, especially the visual reminders. Um, he, he wants to remember uh, things that happened and especially around the house um, is, is where much of the fighting is centered. He wants to see things that were Danny's and remember him with fondness. Right. I mean, of course, a great playwriting tool is the negotiation over objects. And I would say that if you were studying that and focusing on this idea of object negotiation, you ought to read Rabbit Hole as a case study. I mean, scene after scene, the negotiation over objects occurs. Over the objects that Danny left behind, over simple objects like dessert. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really <laughs> masterful in that way. What is the sort of the main thing that is lost, which causes the most tension in, in at least the course of this play, Jackson. Well, I, I'll take a stab at that. I'm not sure I'll, I'll follow the road that you that you want me to, but I'll take a stab at it. One of the things that that, that early on they are um, uh, contentious about is they have uh, lost their intimacy together. The uh, uh, Howie and Becca have not been intimate with each other in months. And for Howie, that is uh, um, uh, an issue that he brings up, a, a problem that he's trying to solve within the first scene. Um, he he kind of puts on music in the first scene and tries to oh, set a romantic The first mood. scene between them is so memorable. It's so iconic and great. He's 
they they have eaten this great dinner that Becca cooked. Apparently, she's this amazing cook and baker, and they're enjoying this dessert. And then he invites her over into the living room, tries to get her to drink wine and turn the lights down. He starts playing music, notably Al Green music. <laughs> sure, yep. And eventually, she figures it out, right? And how does that go? Right, and she she uh, stops it, basically. She kind of stops things from happening and says, okay, that's enough, you're being naughty, and uh, she gets up and moves away. And that cues a longer fight about, he brings up how long it's been, and she accuses him of keeping track of how long it's been, geez. And he says, yes, I keep track of how long it's been, we're, we're married, I, we're, it's okay that we're supposed to be this way, and she says that she is not ready yet for that kind of intimacy after, after the death of Danny. And really, so, even that is a sort of negotiation over objects, the object yeah. of being, in this case, sex, and yep. the negotiation over whether as uh, a married couple who's lost a child, they can return to having, you know, regular physical intimacy becomes a way to negotiate about how quickly either of them is moving on from the loss of Danny. It also has my favorite sequence of lines in the whole play. Becca says, uh, it's a little bit crass and selfish for you to be roping me into sex when I don't want to have it. And Howie says, I wasn't roping you into anything. And she says, no. Al Green isn't roping? No. Al Green? I thought it was nice. Yep. And I don't love the movie adaption of this, but Nicole Kidman's delivery of those lines is hilarious. It's yeah. just very, very funny. Yeah, I agree. Yep. So yeah, that's that. At least initially, that is what the the first big fight is about. But there's a whole bunch of other ancillary things, right? As well. And and actually, what I was referencing and the the thing that is lost, the major object that is lost then throughout this play is the video. Oh yeah 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 yeah. So so at the end of this scene where they fight and they ultimately decide, or Becca ultimately decides not to have sex, she's going to go to bed, that whatever, Howie watches an old movie of him and Danny playing. And the stage directions are really specific that this is not supposed to be a tearful thing. He's not sort of sadly bemoaning. He just is watching it mostly because it makes him happy. He's, he gets to see his son. He gets to experience what, what what happened then again. And he's just playing it low, just in watching this little movie. And there's lines written out for what you're supposed to do. So that's on the technical team to create a, a sort of at least sound and light show that represents this movie that he's watching. Mm-hmm. And Becca, you see Becca come in from the stairs or in the stage direction, whether you do stairs or not is up to you. But you see her at least come in from the bedroom and see that Howie is watching it. So that's the first of the two acts of the the plot of the videotape. What's the second, Jackson? Yeah, so the second is a couple days. No, no, the next day. Um the, she he he goes and he tries to watch it again. He he sets it up and he starts playing it and uh he discovers that it's been recorded over. This this is this is probably one of the the elements that date this play a little bit that is interesting to overcome if you do this play. Um it's a VHS. So uh they recorded things on VHS and he he had this movie of Danny that he had in there, but uh they also record television shows uh that they wanted to see and she has recorded on the tape a a National Geographic or something about tornadoes. And, Which uh, apparently he said he wanted her to record because he wanted to watch it. And mm-hmm. she says that she believed a different recording was in the videotape. Apparently they had watched, 
I don't know, Pride and Prejudice or something. I forget what exactly what it is. A recording of something on TV the night before. And that she thought that that was what was still in there, at least she claims. And she recorded over it with the thing that he wanted her to watch. However, we know that that's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) How do we know that? Because in the scene where Howie is watching the videotape, we see her standing there watching him watch the videotape. Yes. So unfortunately, the uh, it's is a moment of dramatic irony. She, I think, in the scene manages to convince Howie that it was an accident, and the audience knows that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly not the way she framed it, at least. It's not that she didn't know that there could be another tape in there. She saw him watching that tape. So that becomes... That becomes the subject of the next fight, kind of, is is what things are... She, she is going through and and removing things of Danny's. And uh, and I think the, the paintings is the other one, one of the big objects that they talk about, like drawings that he did that were on the fridge. And she's taken them off and put them in a box downstairs. And uh, and so she's willing to move on from those things. And, and she has them much more prevalent in her life as well. She's around the house more often because of the way that their lives are. She is at home and he's he's working. Um, and so she interacts with all these objects quite a bit more than he does. So he comes home and he wants to be able to see these things, but uh, she, she has to live with them and with this constant reminder that Danny is no longer there. And so that negotiation over objects becomes not a negotiation over timing of how quickly we have moved along and and where we're at in the different process, but it becomes a negotiation over how we deal with the fact that Danny is no longer in our lives, the method, not the timing. And Mm. Becca's method is to remove things. She does not want to be reminded. She does not want to see Danny's stuff all over. She does not, for some reason, want Howie to watch these old tapes of himself and Danny. Whereas Howie's counter argument is, I want that stuff around. I want to see his pictures on the fridge. At one point he says, I want to see his fingerprint smudges on the door frames. I want those reminders. I want the dog around as a reminder. Yeah, yep. Yeah, and and eventually he does get the dog back. The dog comes back around, much to the, to the future chagrin of all the characters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let's introduce Nat into this equation. Um, I feel like she she uh, informs some of these as well. Um, and Nat is uh, Becca's mother, um, and uh, she comes over in a number of scenes. There's a birthday party for Izzy that she is in. She also helps Becca at one stage or another uh, clean out some of Danny's things. And, uh, and so she shows up, and she... She is uh, trying to comfort, I think, is is a good good chunk of what Nat does in this play to various effects. Um, she has some life experiences that are somewhat similar. She lost her son, who would be Becca and Izzy's older brother, um, to, uh, uh, I believe it was a heroin addiction, I think is how they, they term it in there, and he died um, uh, years ago. And so she tries to use that as a way of helping Becca cope with the death of her son, um, which is not necessarily what Becca needs within this play. Right. Becca really scoffs off those comparisons. And any time Nat makes any comparison about her son and Becca's son, Becca shuts that down immediately because uh, Nat lost her son when he was an adult man and he lost him to a heroin addiction. And she lost her son as a very young boy to uh, a random accident in the streets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and arguably that's, that's a very different thing. Um, However, she really um, 
speeds down Nat in that equation. Um, she she gets her to stop helping at all, and uh, to the point that Nat eventually uh, tries to just. She's basically just reminiscing. You get the feeling this is in a scene where she is helping Becca. Uh, pack away, separate out some of Danny's things into keep and send away piles. And you get the feeling that she is trying to process some of the grief as well, but she's so kind of gun shy that she says, I don't know your rules. I don't know what I'm supposed to say, even as she herself is trying to process this grief out loud within the family setting. Right. And so that scene where Nat and Becca are are taking apart things in Danny's room is, at least in this this part of their story that we see is the first time really that Becca allows Nat to provide her with some advice and even seeks out some advice. In the previous scenes that we've seen Nat, Becca is really against talking about it at all with Nat. She doesn't want Nat to bring it up. She doesn't want her to bring up comparisons. Again, it's that sort of idea that Becca is sort of solo tracking this process of grief. Yeah, yeah. In the face of, of other people, I think well-meaning, trying to help. Um, she she aggressively removes other people from the equation. Um, another of those people are Izzy. Izzy tries to help occasionally. Um, Izzy, Izzy is a delightfully complicated character. Um, but uh, she... she um, she shows up and is basically trying to help through presence, I think, and uh, and being around and being a part of things and 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 that and just just being around sometimes is what uh, annoys Becca throughout this this play as well. Yeah, absolutely. So each of the characters has this sort of relationship to the event of what happened as well, right? Becca and Howie go back and forth several times about whose fault it was that the gate was unlatched and and that that nobody was watching him and that he got out into the front yard. And so they share some blame there as parents, or they believe they share some blame as parents. But Izzy as well feels like she shoulders some of the burden of guilt from what occurred too. She says that she was the one who was on the phone with Becca complaining about their mother when uh, Danny got out and got hit by the car. And maybe if she hadn't been on the phone with Becca, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, I really like the way that this play deals with blame I, and and how, how people carry it. I don't think anyone really would say that especially not to the other's face, but I don't I don't think that they even deep down sometimes believe that it is the other's fault. I think everyone blames themselves. And and every time someone brings up how it's their fault, the other character in the room is swift to say, no, 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 no. If I hadn't been doing this, this wouldn't have happened. Um, and, and like the playwright reminds us at the beginning, these aren't people wallowing in their grief. So I think that they all know that that's not the right thing to do. And they're continually trying to say to each other, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go there. That's not, a, that's not a healthy path to go down. It was just an accident. Things happen. Boys chase dogs. Dogs run into the street. People weren't like, it's, it's, stuff happens. Yeah, yeah. I think maybe the exception to that, at least for a, a, a good chunk of the play, is Jason, though. 
Um, Jason is introduced. Uh, they're, they're selling the house is the other big object <laughs> that is being negotiated over. Um, I think both of them are, are in agreement as to as to the need to move something along with the house. They're trying to sell it, trying to move to a new place. And so they have this open house. Well, Becca and Howie, at the end of that scene where they fight about the videotape that got erased, the culmination of that scene is Becca saying, I don't want anything around to remind me. I want to put, you know, I, and, and so I need to move. We need to sell the house and move. And Howie really doesn't want to uh, initially. Eventually he, he ends up caving, I guess. Yeah. But, yep. um, we don't really don't see the scene where he assents to selling the house. They end the scene just saying that they're going to think about it. But the, the first time that Jason is actually introduced is the scene of Izzy's birthday. So uh, there's all these characters around to celebrate Izzy's birthday. It's, na- it's, it's pretty much everybody except Jason. Nat, Howie, Becca, and Izzy are all there. And it ends up becoming this big fight and this big sort of session. And Izzy is like, well, it's my birthday. Why are we celebrating? And something is clearly wrong with Becca. She's really worked up. Things get to her really easily in that scene. Blah, blah, blah. Eventually, she storms off. And what Howie says is, I I know what this is really about. This is about the fact that we just got a letter from Jason, who we learn is the kid that accidentally killed Danny. And the the letter, we actually hear the letter read aloud in the next scene. But Howie says, she got this letter. We don't really know what to do with it. We're still processing. He wants to meet us. He apologizes. All of this stuff. And he sends along like a... A, uh, a science fiction uh, short short story that he's written as well. He, he's trying to reach out and connect. He's been told to uh, find a way to connect with this this with with Howie and Becca and try to work through some of his own grief as well. Right. So the beginning of the next scene, we hear the whole letter, and and that's what we learn is that Jason, in this long letter to them, has basically said, uh, "Look, I'm having trouble at school and at home." I think it. People have told me that it, I, I need to find a way to process what happened. Um, I, I read the obituary about Danny. I think I would like to meet you. Um, by the way, I have I've written this <laughs> short story. I want to dedicate it to Danny. Um, please let me know. And and uh, by the way, can we meet? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is a, a, a that scene is is a bit of a a step out of reality within this play that is a pretty much a straight play. But uh, Danny kind of walks forward in a stylized scene and uh, reads his letter. Oh shoot! <laughs> not Danny. Yeah, not Danny. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Jason walks forward and 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 is in kind of you know a spotlight scene where Becca is reading the letter, but Dan or but Jason is speaking the letter. And uh, so yeah, that 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 scene kind of takes us out of the play for a moment and then we're we're back in it again for the the following so then jason arrives they they're trying to sell the house they've had an open house that has gone unsuccessfully in in the meantime izzy has accused howie of going on a date with another woman he says it's just a woman from the support group her husband just wasn't there we were just we just went out to dinner after the support group there was no foul play how dare you they've gotten in a small dispute about that Izzy has claimed that she thinks Becca is still mad at her about distracting her when Danny was killed. Some stuff like that has happened. And the sale of the house has gone badly. And Izzy thinks it is because Danny's room is still looks like a little kid's room. And so people see the house and ask them about uh, Danny and how he says, well, he's my son that died. And then nobody wants to buy the house. 
the movie actually plays one of those scenes out, how he's giving a tour and they find the little boys' room. So that's kind of an interesting uh, addition to the to the story of the play, if you're ever interested in seeing that, to see him actually tell and see the faces of these people get sort of shocked at what he's telling them, et yeah. cetera. So the, yeah. the, it goes badly. Becca and Nat come home. What is the story that Becca tells about their interaction at the store? Because this is a, a, a crucial point, too, to, to, to see. Becca tries to seem very put together, but then we hear stories like this. Yeah, well, she tells a story about being in a supermarket and seeing a mother and son at the supermarket and they're shopping and the son is uh, wanting fruit roll-ups. And uh, he kind of throws a little bit of a tantrum about it, and she says no, and he continues to ask, and uh, she, the, the the mother of this other child, uh, ends up, as a tactic of, of, of uh, dealing with this tantrum, ends up ignoring the child as he continues to whine about wanting more of the roll-ups. And uh, Nat and Becca are out shopping at this moment, and Becca goes up and has words with the mother at the at the market and says you should just give him the roll-ups. I mean, they're pretty much healthy. They're not even they're made from fruit and it's not even sugar. You should uh, give those to him. And the mother's like, uh, no, I'm not going to, and starts to uh, <laughs> starts to walk away. And Becca says she rolls over her foot um, with the cart. Uh, by accident. She admits that it's by accident. Um, and she winds up slapping her. <laughs> she hauls off and hits her. Um, Becca, Becca hits the other mother. And, <laughs> and there's a great echo in that of the first scene of the play. This is actually the first scene of the act two. Yeah. And in the first scene of the play, Izzy is telling a story about how she hits somebody. Uh, and, and so there's there's some parallels there, which are kind of fun. But we learn that Becca's maybe not doing as well as she said she was. Not only that she's... Uh, totally behind his back destroying old copies of videos of Danny and hiding all of his stuff away but apparently she's also hitting people at the store right. so they're all having this discussion about what happened to Becca at the store after the open house has gone so badly and who walks in the door but Jason yeah yeah, Jason just walks into this open house and says, I saw that you had an open house, so I thought it'd be okay to come by. And what, what we are left to assume is that they have not reached out to him for some sort of meeting. He asks them to have a meeting in the letter, and they d aren't, aren't game for it. Um, so he shows up at their house in the middle of this open house, and there's this moment of kind of silence and shock as they realize that, that, that he's there. And... Um, and he he tries to have like an initial conversation and then realizes it's not great. So he tries to get a meeting for some time in the future. And Howie especially has a pretty – as close as Howie gets to uh, being really angry and blamey about this <laughs> at someone. He, he – uh, I think I think I think he says, "Can I just say?" is the one line that he says as as Jason Jason eventually turns to go and uh, he starts to walk out of there. And uh, as he's walking out, how he says, "Can I just say?" And Izzy says, "Oh, here we go." And he begins to uh, rail against uh, Jason for coming into the open house and that, that we have a house here. We're trying to sell this house. How dare you come in here and just decide that it's okay for you to be here? And uh, and there's. You you get the feeling there's a lot more subtext to what he wants to talk about there. Right, he's he's pretty harsh. He's pretty aggressive with Jason and getting him out of the house. And this is really the second time in the play that we've really seen Howie break down because as a whole, at first blush, Howie appears much more 
um, recovered than Becca does. We, we've said that Becca seems to be fine, but she's got a lot of cracks showing. And Howie's cracks are fewer and farther between, but they might run deeper. The first time he really explodes is when the videotape is lost, and he ends up just sort of sobbing and screaming, you have to stop erasing him. You have to stop erasing him. One of the more poignant images of the play, if you remember one thing, you might, you might remember that image of Howie, you have to stop erasing him. You have to stop. So, And then the next scene, because that's the last scene of Act 1, first scene of Act 2 is this scene where, again, he, something shows through that he's he's still angry at mm-hmm. Jason. And and he knows, they say over and over, all the, we, we know that it's not Jason's fault. The, the kid ran out in the middle of the street. There's really nothing you could have done. Obviously, we know he's not at fault. But when Jason shows up at their house, Howie's seems fairly angry with him still. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and the rest of the family kind of rallies around and gets them to calm down. Eventually, Jason leaves. Um, but that's that's the only scene that Howie and Jason have together, and it's and it's a pretty contentious one. Um, the the other one, and, and probably this is this is probably my favorite scene. So the next scene that happens, I believe, is the pack up scene between uh, Nat and Becca. And we, and we haven't really gone into that scene, and that is probably my favorite scene of the okay. play. I have, cool. I have other got... favorite moments, but that's my favorite scene of the play. All right, let's let's hit that one first. Then my, mine is the one after that. So let's keep so, going. So so the real estate sale has gone so badly because they think Danny's room is still there, and so people get weirded out. So they've elected to clean up Danny's room and how he's actually agreed to let them clean out Danny's room. So Becca and Nat are 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 doing this. They're going through his stuff. They they clearly know that this was going to be an emotional experience, so they're ready. They've they've prepared each other. They said, "Look, we can't just look at everything and remember with every object that we move. We got to just put it away and and try to move through it very quickly." Ultimately, what ends up happening is this sort of discussion between mothers. This tender moment where they they both talk about this, what it's like to have the experience of losing a son. And Nat gives Becca some advice about her friends that she feel has left her. And ultimately, Nat gives a, a really poignant description of, of what it's like to hang on to grief for a long time. Um Becca asks, basically, does this does this horrible feeling ever go away? And that's really surprising and beautiful and honest answer is no, it doesn't. Um, she says it never goes away. It, it changes. It becomes something that she, she uses the metaphor of a brick in her pocket that you, you have in your pocket, you carry with you always. Sometimes you forget about it, but something will remind you and it will still be there. And that even indicates that that is okay with her, that she wants that. It's this sort of sense that, her, that there's still something with her, even though her son isn't anymore. And maybe carrying that grief is a way of carrying her son with her. Yeah, I really like that image as well. The 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 desire for it still to be there even though it causes so much pain, she wouldn't she wouldn't want to be without it because that's what's left and and of the person and the person was so important to her that that she wants to hang on to it even though it causes her that much pain. Um I I I agree that that I I, I as I was kind of thinking through the scene, I forgot that that was in that scene and that is Probably one of my one of the most beautiful, poignant moments of the play is that it's, assessment of it's, it. It's especially so 
striking because it's the characters have really let their guards down. And a lot of this play is even family members who, because of this tragedy that has happened, have become sort of strangers to each other and have put up their guards and they all feel sort of isolated because of their own continuing experience of grief. So it's so touching, I think, because you finally see Becca and Nat let down the screen a little bit and just go back to being people who care deeply about each other and have gone through something so awful. Yeah, yeah, I agree that it's a long road in that scene, too. It starts kind of, uh, again, obliquely. I've been saying that word more recently. I think I said it in this episode like two times. But it starts obliquely. She's uh, Becca talks about this group that she's finally found. She's she's found a group that's further into the city. This is set somewhere in New York, uh, a suburb of New and, York. And, and, and to be clear, uh, not a child, not a, not a support group, not a therapy yeah. group. Exactly. Right. This is a, it's like a book club or it's a continue, it's a class actually, right? It's like a, a literature class. Yeah, but this class allows her to be with people who don't know her and they're not there to to talk about, uh, like like Howie's group, talk about sh- sharing grief and, and handling grief. They're there to talk about a book. Um, and she's able to once again engage with people who don't know her, who don't know the situation. She has a lot of um, perceived hurt from people who know her situation, um, both in absence. Uh, one friend group has stopped talking to her, um, and, and and she is hurt by that, but also she is hurt by people who know the situation and try to speak in a way that is mindful of that situation toward her. Um, so this group allows her to be outside of that. Nat sh- shares a story of this woman who would come to her house when her son dies and eat all her, like, uh, coffee cake and drink all her coffee and eventually she yelled at her and that friend went away and left her alone and she was the only one she could talk to about her son's death. So it's a long road where they both slowly unpack some of the things that they've been holding separate from each other to reach that point. And and that encourages Becca to reach out to especially this one friend that Becca has really felt like abandoned her. And says, you know, your friend just doesn't know what to do. It's weird. She doesn't know how to talk to you. That I went through that. And believe me, the alternative might be worse. I've had this friend that was around forever, like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but in the end, yeah, she she encourages her to keep that friendship strong and, and bring it bring it back around again. So then we come to the next scene. Right. So we've been kind of tracking for a few scenes. We got lost a little bit, but we've been tracking Jason and his relationship to the guilt of the play. We talked about how uh, Howie and Becca and Izzy each carry a sort of guilt that this this event might not have happened if they had done something different, even if they know because they're, they're recovering, they're functioning, they're, they're, they're trying to, to be healthy. They know that it's not their fault, but they there might be this sort of sub-level worry or anxiety or depression uh, that that this might be the result of my actions, or at the very least, if I had done something differently, this would not have happened. Mm-hmm. But each of them knows ultimately that's not true. I, there's nothing I really could have done knowing what I knew. It's not my fault. I have to keep pushing towards that. We've we've talked about those, and then we started tracking Jason, and this all, Jason's whole plot sort of culminates down to this scene. He has the letter that he sends. He has the the brief exchange with Howie and the family when he shows up at the real estate sale. And then this this scene, which you say is your favorite scene. 
Yes, I really like the scene. So, so Jason uh, comes over. Uh, Becca invites him over and sets up a meeting. How he is not there. Uh, how he does know about it, we find out. Um, but uh, he, she invites Jason over, and uh, they speak to one another. And that's that's the scene, honestly. Like, I, I, we'll go into it more. But I, I, the simplicity of the scene is that they speak to one another. Two people who are opposed in this or who are in our mind one has committed a terrible grievance against the other and and in a situation that many of us can imagine would be horrible to sit in the mother of the child who Jason unintentionally killed invites him over and has a conversation and and let me say that it would be it would have been very easy for David Lindsay Abair to write the driver as a villain not oh, even yeah. not even an unbelievable villain, right? Because Danny, if if I was inventing the story, Danny could have been killed by a drunk driver, mm-hmm. and then you can limit, and then you can just tear and rage against this evil person who, how dare they drink and drive and kill my son? Or you know, he could have been shot by gang violence. Or there's lots of situations in which Danny could have died that would have made out the killer to be a villain. But what David Lindsay Abair does is craft the most complicated situation. <laughs> Yeah. Which is that it was just an accident. Mm-hmm. And this kid seems like a good kid. Yeah. And he's not clearly in jail. They clearly, they didn't press charges. He's gone on to try to recover in his life. But he, as well as them, is also trying to recover from this tragedy. Mm-hmm. And, and we are made to empathize with him as well. Absolutely. We're, we're, we're really made to empathize. And we see him unpack the moment that it happened. He talks about how he was driving and how he's normally a very careful driver and that he looks down normally he in 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 an instance of over explaining something that we have all a done but also have heard someone do before of over explaining something that they're just trying to grapple with and remember he explains how he normally looks down at the speedometer every couple seconds just to be sure that he's not going too far over the, over the speed limit and he thought that maybe this time maybe he was going, you know, maybe 4 miles over the speed limit. Well, that's my favorite part of this scene is that ultimately what Jason wants to tell her and Howie, although Howie is not there, he wants them to know that he might have been speeding. Right. I mean, again, this layer of complexity. Jason's not there to ask for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. He's he's not there to try to make himself feel better. The truth is what he's there to do is try to explain that it was his fault. Yeah. I, I, I'm amazed at the character writing, especially in that character, of the ability of this playwright to say, I'm going to write a character whose ultimate guilt might be that he's not really guilty. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and then and then tying back to what you said about how these these you know that it's not necessarily a villain or some wrong in the world, that the title of the play comes from this scene. They talk about how this just happened to them and it's awful and sometimes awful things happen, but it comes up in the scene. This play is so full of subtext. I feel like I'm talking a lot of what my feelings are from these scenes because the words of the play are, they're talking about his science fiction story and how, right. And, and the story is about uh, a world in which there are parallel universes, which you can access via a wormhole. And the character in the story loses his father, and so he uses this wormhole generator or some such to go into these parallel universes and find the father. And he explains how, oh, it must 
must be true in classically bad high school logic. <laughs> right. I love that too, that it's not even a sound argument. Like yeah. the playwright wrote a bad high school <laughs> argument for why there must be parallel universes. That's great attention to detail. Right. And, and it says there must be parallel universes because there have to be. And uh, in parallel universes, different things have happened to us. And what do they never say out loud, Jackson? Do you know what I'm thinking? What parallel universe do they never claim exists? Uh, I don't know what you're thinking. They never claim that a parallel universe exists where Danny is still alive. Oh, yeah. But that is, I mean, that in, that idea is the undercurrent of the whole scene. Mm-hmm. The whole discussion of parallel universes, I think everybody experiencing it is going, that means there might be a parallel universe where Danny is alive. Yeah, yeah. But brilliantly, they never say that. Yeah, I think the closest they ever get is like we're all happy or something like that. Right. Yeah. So, so th- th- this 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 whole scene is is carrying on. This conversation is carrying on between the two of them, and what is underneath it all is this. I wish it was different, and this is awful, <laughs> and we and and we're just trying to to help each other. Maybe I think I think in this scene more than any other, maybe the Nat scene, I mean Nat and Becca scene is 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 similar to this, but they are just trying to meet and be present with each other to try to help in some way. They're very inaccessible to each other through chunks of the scene. She tries to identify with some of his science fiction talk and and he can't qu- quite explain it well. He, the, what's what's the one that he brings that she tries to explain to him that he just doesn't get? It, it, I think it's the it's the uh, myth that he she realizes that his story is very close to the Greek myth of uh, help me Orpheus out Orpheus and Persephone. Yes, yes, and he can't understand that either. So no, no, I've, that was really wrong. Orpheus and Eurydice. Not Orpheus Persephone. and Eurydice. <laughs> you can be for all of you for out there one. who just like almost put your fingers on the keyboard. Like, oh, he got that a good comment. I got it. I got it. I got it. I remembered it. Yes. <laughs> but yes, two people who would would have a terrible hard time being with each other take the time to be with each other. That's why I like that scene so much. Well, and I love that scene because it's a scene where there's no clear goal. Right? right. I mean, you say as a as a as a playwright, as a director, as theater artists, we all know that at some level, theater, really active, good theater, is about characters pursuing goals, to, to trying to do something, get something from each other. That's great. But this scene seems masterful in its lack of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, Becca and Jason come into the scene and just seem to have no idea what they want from the other person and do or don't get it. It's very hard to tell. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it makes it so real. Like, I know I've had conversations like that before where the only thing that is unifying me with someone is not that level of pain, but something that we're trying to deal with. Right. And, well, and it, it feels very much like in in the first or second. It's the second scene, actually, when they're when they're talking about um, it's Izzy's birthday and they're talking about how Becca hasn't gone to a support group. Howie has brought it up and, and says she's not going to a support group. And Becca says, well, I don't have anything in common with those people besides the fact that we all have dead kids. And that relationship feels very much similar to this scene that is then played out later in the play, which is two people that have nothing in common, no reason to be around each other other than this connection of her dead child. Mm -hmm. And so you watch two people who are very, very uh, low context, very, very much strangers, really have no reason to discuss anything except for the death of her child. And that's the one thing they will they, <laughs> they won't, won't yeah. talk about. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Other than his 
admission or or attempt to weigh some of the guilt on himself. The scene ends by him asking Becca, I, I know that Howie couldn't be here, but could you please tell Howie that I might have been going a little over the speed limit? I mean, that's crazy that he's so insistent that his guilt gets shared amongst them, including shared with the person who was very angry with him the last time they met. Right. Yes, absolutely. That the, 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 the kind of attempt to unburden is, is, is what he's shooting for, yeah. Well, where does this story end, Jackson? What, I don't know about what happens plot-wise in the last scene, but where does this play leave us with this ongoing story? It's ongoing. I think you just said what it is. I think that it is intentionally uh, left open and raw at the end. It's not buttoned up. The last scene is between Howie and Becca. Howie comes back and says he's probably ready to stop going to this group. Um, He needs to start moving on in a different way. And she says that uh, Becca says that she has called her friend and um, they they were able to talk and apologize and that they would like to have them over for a barbecue. And I, I, I think that that is the cue. the 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 lines about that barbecue at the end of the play is is the play in a lot of ways. Is the as close to a resolution as we get, and it's not a resolution. They just well, the say, resolution is we don't know what's going to happen longer than the next few days, right? Yeah. He says they describe in intimate detail what they're going to do when they go to this barbecue. Uh, they, you know, they describe every sort of interaction, everything they got to get ready, everything they got to buy this birthday present. They're going to go and enjoy themselves. They're going to talk about this. Then they're going to talk about this. Then they're going to do this. And then they're going to get home and who knows what happens next. Yeah. So it's just, it's that day at a time mentality that we're, we're in it still. That's as close as the resolution as we get is we're in it still. And we'll keep pushing. We'll keep trying to figure it out. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen. So let me ask you this, Jackson. I agree with that that uh, description of the ending. So why does this play work? Does it seem to you that the characters end the play in a different place than the play began? And if yes, how? If no, why is this really a play? Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to be And annoyed. I gave you the two options because I have honestly no idea what you're going to say. <laughs> do, do they end the play in a different place than they started? They do. They're on the road together. Um, I think mm. that is. I think that is where the the journey of this play is not that they have journeyed out of grief, but they have journeyed out of separate uh, handlings of the grief into something joined by the end of the play. And and it's a messy way to do it. They they handle most of it separately. It's not like there's a moment where they have the reconciliation fight. Rather, they have handled things separately. He's done with his therapy. Or not his. He's done with his his group that he meets with. She went off on her own and fixed the relationship with the friends, and now they're coming back together and they're saying they'll move forward together. And the movie really emphasizes this possibility of an affair with Howie, but I do think that that's the crucial. Um, mm, yeah. uh, dis- the crucial. The reason why it's so crucial that he leaves the support group, because. Otherwise, that seems like the wrong direction. <laughs> seems like the wrong way for him to go to start the play in a support group for parents of murdered children or of uh, who have lost children and end the play leaving the group. That does right. not seem like the way to healthful recovery from this grief. Uh, but what 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 the what the crucial decision for him there is, 
I'm not going to go to that group, I think because of this potential relationship with the other woman. Yeah. The movie really plays up the idea that he might almost have an affair. I don't know if that's in the playtext as much, um, but at the very least, there there was some potential for something to happen that would have really torn his marriage apart. And what he decides at the end is, I, I'm going to stop investing in that and continue to invest in my marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, the the potential for relationships out in in that other group, he, he was putting a lot of focus in there, and now the focus is realigned back to them again. So let me ask you this: If they started to play at different places, Becca claims that that they're in really different places of uh, recovery and 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 pursuit of healthfulness again. I guess mm-hmm. they start in very different places. Why do they do they end in the same place or? Of recovery, or or how do they grow back together? That is what I don't know, and I think that's what I was kind of angle angle around to is I I don't I don't necessarily see them, you know the 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 analogy of the vine kind of growing separately and then coming together and growing around each other. I don't I don't see that happening. Um, I, maybe you have some insight into that. What do you think? Do you think that they? That, that it's shown in the script or that we're meant to maybe in, in, induce well, I, some I think of it? The, the, the part of the story we don't get is Howie's part because Howie has the scene with the, where the real estate sale goes badly and Izzy accuses him of having an affair and Jason shows up and he gets mad at Jason. And then we don't see Howie again until the very last scene of the play. He does appear for just a moment in the Nat and Becca scene, but only really to approve of the changes to Danny's room. And maybe that is a part of the journey for him, that he's starting to be willing to let go of some of Danny's stuff. But I actually do think that we follow Becca's journey back to him a little bit, especially in the the conversation with Nat and the conversation with Jason. These sort of, these conversations with other people that, move in her somehow. But I I agree with you that I, I don't exactly know where the coming together actually occurs. It seems to, maybe in my ignorant view, it seems to mostly occur on Becca's side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think that's the challenge, though, is, is making that last scene where they are uh, kind of restructuring their life again in a very short, very short scene to be restructuring a life. Um, but that that's the challenge of that last scene is to show those blocks beginning to set back into place. I don't think there's a version of the play that feels like, oh, they're back together and it's fine and 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 it's going to be okay. They're going to be okay. I don't think that, I think you'll be doing a, the play a disservice if you end the play that way. I think it's supposed to be messy at the end, but I think that last scene with the return to each other and the catching up on what has happened in that day when Jason came over and she called her friend, when Howie went out and left the support group for the last time, I think those beats can inform some of that for the ending of the play. And I think it's why, you know, this this sort of lack of, if, if we say that they start the play separately and end the play together, it's sort of hard to determine where all those things happen. It might be why I'm not totally sure that they, they end the play together is the right way to say that. I think they end the play a little bit more together. Sure. A little bit more recovered. The journey is not like a sweeping huge change, you know, from uh, I'm grieving the death of my son, I'm now over the death of my son. I think the play is from being in a really tough place as a couple and and individually for all the characters to being in a little bit better place. 
And the, the brilliance of the play is to say that even that move from being in a terrible place to a little bit better place is dramatic, is important. Yeah, yeah. It's a story worth sharing and it's a story that is 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 common to people a story that will matter to people and and it's a story for people who've experienced grief that says that the it's not that in your grief the only two important moments are when you're grieving and when you're over it i think that david lindsay abair says the moments in between where you get a little better where you come a little bit more closely aligned with the people in your family when you let go of a little bit of the pain when you let down a little bit of your walls those little moments are just as important just as dramatic as the change from grief to recovery yeah if that ever comes as is mentioned if that ever comes right nat says it never comes yeah yeah so i i I like i like that a lot that the that it lets you rest in a moment that most people might might never recover from and figure figure out a way to watch some of the characters try to grapple with that fact. Right. People who have really grieved the loss of something, and even if you've never lost a child or lost a family member, maybe you've been through, I don't know, a, a breakup that was really hard, or you had a job fall through that you really wanted. Uh, something that, you know, really caused you deep deep pain, not just I'm sad, but if you felt that sort of deep pain, there are those moments where you say, Today I'm a little better. Yeah. I'm not over it, but I can tell that I'm a little better. And this play is a celebration of that, I think. Well, we are at the end of our time, I am afraid. Uh, this this play is is one that we are steeped in. We've read it so many times. Um, I, I really, really like this play. I, I know, I know that we'll get to do it, and I hope we that are, it is soon. Jackson, we are going, we are to, going do to do the stinking play. play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if we ever do anything, in, it has to be this play. In the near future, this is going to happen. <laughs> Yes. Um, if you have been in this play, if you've interacted with this play in any... We know some of you have been we in this play. <laughs> We've seen you. <laughs> Comment. We want to hear from you. We want to keep talking with you. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at NoScript Podcast and uh, comment on this post. We'd love to have the conversation with you. If you'd like to email, we're uh, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. We'd continue the conversation there as well. And I'd like to send an individual message out to Karen Baumbarker, who is a previous guest of this show. I want you to know, Karen, if you're listening, that my dream role for you is to play Nat. <laughs> I don't know what that means for you, whether that whether you're disappointed in me for thinking like that, but <laughs> I have always wanted to see you play Nat. So when we do Rabbit Hole, I hope you can play Nat with us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you like this episode or some of our other episodes, including our special guest Karen Baumbarker from last season, uh-huh. if you've liked any of those episodes, please share the episode on your social media platform. Tell people about this podcast. There are tons and tons of people who love to read scripts, who love the theater, love to talk about good stories. We know those people are out there. We need your help to find them. We are so incredibly blessed by the listenership that we have and the community. So we want to keep growing. So please tell people about it. You can find the podcast on Podbean, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play, or on Spotify. Yes, indeed. So next week, we're doing Miller Month. We're hitting you right off the bat with The Crucible. We stare so, into the great void that is Arthur Miller. Yes, it and is try coming. desperately not to make fools of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but 
it'll be fine. Let me tell you, the pressure is high because we know a lot of you have read these plays Mm -hmm. and have talked with people who really are good at talking about literature. And so (laughs) we are we're getting ready. We are we are prepping. It's gonna be good. So we will see you next week with that one. Until then, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script the Podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Bye.